Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Welcome to episode 25 of Odeon Capital Conversations. We'll talk lots about our money and markets with so much happening in the US and across the globe. We look at some potential downside and even social chaos and danger because of the recent rise in the US dollar against major currencies with research from Dick Beauvais. We look at the US economy and signs of weakness and what the latest job numbers are telling us. There's much to report on the banks ahead of earnings season. All of this against the backdrop of the disturbing Russia invasion of Ukraine. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this break. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome to episode 25 of Odeon Capital Conversations. Lots to talk about. Before we get to our first topic on the dollar, the upside and downside of what's going on there in the markets, Dick, you're going to give us some interesting research. What's going on in the markets generally? Where do you see it headed? The market uh, was very strong uh, last week. And then uh, I guess today, it's uh, not doing quite as well. It uh, hasn't did that do well, uh, very well yesterday. And I think that um, w- what happened last week was a belief that the Fed would succeed in terms of what it was attempting to do and that the economy would not be harmed as bad uh, as badly. And therefore, uh, you know, people should start to buy stocks. I think there was also a view which I share, which is that some of these stocks are getting so cheap that it makes sense to just buy at least a position in them and hold them for a while. And I think what's happening this week is uh, perhaps a return to reality, which is, yeah, this is still a bear market. We're still looking at a recession. The Fed is still going to increase uh, uh, rates relatively rapidly, uh, at least in the next uh, couple of weeks, um, and then again a month later. So uh, you know, we, we're flip-flopping back and forth. But uh, I, th- I think at, at the core, my belief is some of these stocks are so cheap that uh, picking some of them off, not a full position, but at least some makes a great deal of sense. I mean, historically, the, the markets don't turn until the Fed stops raising rates. And so far, we've got the Fed priced in, or the, the market's priced in 75 bips in July, 50 bips in September, and 50 bips there in, in I think, October. Um, I'm not so sure I believe in the in the fall rate increases, but until the Fed stops, I think the stock market's in for a world of hurt. What's really surprising to me is I look around America, and I, I think I've said this before, I, I see all these you know negative signs and negative things, and then you look around the world, 
and you realize how good America is. And I think that's what's reflected in the dollar. I mean, right now, we woke up this morning to see the dollar at parity with the euro, which I don't think a single person on earth was predicting in the beginning of 2022 to see the dollar and the euro you know, be parity or have parity. So uh, it, it's a really interesting world out there. And, and what's going to really be you know, the, the, the clouds on the horizon is, is this fall. Right now, the Nord Stream pipeline, the, the number one pipeline, is gone offline and it's supposed to be offline for two weeks. And there's a lot of people who are anxiously waiting to see if that comes back on as scheduled because a lot of people think um, that Putin will say, well, it's a nice pipeline we got here, but these darn sanctions, we, we just can't turn it back on. And that could be another negative front on the horizon. I think that's what we see in the strength of the dollars in America, you know, in the, in the land of the blind, one-eyed man is king. Which brings us to the United States beggaring the world due to its control of the U.S. dollar, in Dick Bovee's own words. And if you're going to take us back to the Plaza Accord in 1985 and to the present and some potential chaos, social disruption and just a general mayhem. Well, you know, going back, uh, you know, people like to talk about the 1970s a lot uh, because there is some, I guess, comparison. But uh, I'm kind of interested at this point in the 1980s because what happened in the 1980s was obviously, as most, as virtually everyone knows, uh, you know, Paul Volcker came in as chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jimmy Carter put him in position, and he started moving aggressively to attack uh, the problem of inflation. Uh, and one of the approaches that he used was to let interest rates simply rise, uh, and and they rose to you know record levels. So the net effect was that uh, the dollar w- was benefiting by the rise in interest rates in the United States, and funds were flowing into the United States from virtually every country in the world to capture the rise in the value of the dollar and the rise in interest rates. Uh, this this created a major problem for all of the countries that were losing funding. And they came to uh, then President Reagan and uh, his Treasury Secretary, uh, James Baker, and they wanted this increase in the value of the dollar stopped because it was harming their economies. Uh, The result was that uh, Reagan and Baker made the decision not to reappoint uh, Volcker to the Fed, number one. And number two, this meeting was established at the Plaza Hotel in New York, which you know, I guess everybody is well aware of. But anyway, at the meeting at the Plaza Hotel in New York, there was this incredibly detailed document created country by country, specifying what each country agreed to do, in addition to which each country had to sign it uh, to, to indicate that basically they agreed with this. And that means that they had to go back to their leaders, whoever they were, country by country, and get the agreement for it. Uh, the Plaza Accord was put into effect. The value of the dollar, you know, interest rates started to come down in the United States. The dollar came down oh. in value. And we, we then went on to a period of, of uh, tremendous prosperity. But the fact is that um, we're, we're, we're at the cusp of of what was happening, you know, in in the period in which Reagan and Baker wanted to get rid of Volcker, the dollar is simply too strong, uh, and when it gets too strong, it starts to suck in money from other places around the world. Now, the United States Treasury puts out a document uh, every month, which unfortunately is is three months behind uh, actual events. 
And what that document showed, the one that came out, uh, you know, in, in June, the next one comes out on July 18th. What it showed was that uh, central banks around the world continue to, uh, you know, step away from the dollar, uh, w- which is a different subject, uh, which we can get back to. But the, the private entities in these countries are buying, are buying the treasuries strongly. And that, that is resulting in this increase in the value of the dollar. The money is pouring in. So if that continues, two things happen to, we'll say, France, Germany, England, whatever country you want to pick, Ecuador, you know, uh, Argentina, Bolivia, what, you know, what happens to those countries is, number one, it increases the inflation in those countries, because if you buy oil, it's denominated in dollars, and you have to buy dollars to buy oil. So if oil is going up in price and dollars are going up in price, then you're increasing the inflationary impact on these countries. Secondly, um, if you're losing currency, money, in other words, if your money is flowing to the United States, it's not being invested in your country. So I think that whether these complaints are coming into the Federal Reserve uh, or to, uh, you know, President Biden yet, I don't know, but they will. Uh, if the dollar keeps rising, and, and it will require another plaza accord type of an agreement. Uh, and I think it's something that, uh, which, is, which is of high risk, because you can't pull money out of every country in the world and expect those con- and increase the inflation rate at the same time and expect those countries to have stable economies, stable social systems. You know, you will have riots, you will have problems. And I think that's what we're looking at if they don't stop this dollar rise. So we could have social chaos, anarchy on the streets in Europe? Yes. And I think uh, we, we started, we've started to see that uh, Sri Lanka, I guess, is now having you know s- serious riots over what's going on with inflation and economic and failure to the economy to improve, and I think uh, that will seep over to other countries which are being meaningfully harmed by the fact that uh, fun- that the fund flow is out of the country to the United States and prices are going up. Well, we heard that the dollar. And the euro are on parity now, which is remarkable. And there's one or two analysts have predicted the dollar will even go higher. Yeah, in other words, as 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 you and I discovered yesterday in a conversation with uh, you know an inflation advocate, this gentleman thought that uh, the dollar would go to, that the euro would go to eighty cents on the dollar, and that 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 would be disastrous. For who would it be disastrous for? Well, I think this. I think this fellow is, uh, you know, very is is an economist who's written four books and and uh, is a strong Republican and and always finds ways to say that Biden is screwing up. Nathan Lewis, we should identify him. He wrote the book on inflation with Steve uh, Forbes and uh, another co-author, Elizabeth Ames. I have a question on the Plaza Accord. You, you said that Dick that the um, this might if the dollar keeps appreciating, it might call for another Plaza Accord. And I'm guessing back in 1985, we had, it sure feels like looking back, we had better leaders back then, but the the world was totally different. I mean, I'm guessing, or if my memory serves correct, that the US dollar was the strongest currency or we had the biggest economy and then Japan was right there or right with us. And there wasn't a thing called the Euro and China was still, you know, a failing communist country that wasn't part of the WTO or, you know, the world's factory. Like, what would a Plaza Accord look like today? I mean, the, the, there's really only three global currencies right now. I know a lot of people think the pound is one, but I don't. And the yen 
you know, the end, Japan, Japan has a lot of problems. So what would a Plaza Accord look like and who would the participants be? Because I, I, I struggle to see Europe getting its act together and acting in unity when Germany is basically subsidizing the pigs, uh, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. And and they, they're all one member, member of one currency union. And China is the other big currency. And I don't see them sitting down in New York or anywhere with America and coming across a, a deal that stabilizes currency. So who, who do you think would be a participant? And how do you think that would go? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, everything you said is correct. It was a different world than, uh, you know, clearly uh, than it is at the present time. Uh, but uh, I, I think that it would start off with a meeting, uh, you know, between the, the, the two key central banks, which would be uh, ours and, and the European Central Bank. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, there then would be an attempt to bring in the Chinese and maybe even to bring in the Russians, um, you know, so that um, each each country would have some some say. But it, it would start off with with you know the United States and Europe. Whatever United States and Europe agreed to would have to be agreed to by every country that that's part of the European Union because uh, the European Union cannot act without their agreement. Uh, and and I think uh, the reason that China would come in is because China would feel the effect of the worldwide inflation. China would feel the effect of, uh, you know, private sector funds leaving the country, moving toward, you know, the United States. And what, what, what caused the meeting in 1985 was that every country was being hurt. Uh, and, and they wanted this hurt to stop. And, and therefore, I think China would be part of uh, the discussions. Uh, the People's Bank of China, I think, would be part of the discussions. You know, Russia, I don't, you know, who knows what, what will happen with them. The point is that it would be all countries the same as it was back then, because all countries would be feeling the same pain for the same reason. The pain being outflows, increase in pricing, and, and the need to stimulate their economy being prevented by the dollar simply being way too strong. Was Volcker thrown out as like a sacrificial lamb, or was this was this kind of like Churchill being thrown out after winning World War II? I mean, you know, because Volcker, from my perspective, is regarded as one of the best Fed chairs in, in history, if not the world history. It's just hard to see him being thrown out. I just don't imagine. It's hard to put, wrap my arms around it. But was it, was he really thrown out, or was it more symbolic? No, no, he was thrown out. I mean, th there was no question about it. Uh, Baker and Reagan believed that, uh, you know, the, Reagan had put in this big tax cut and he had promised that the economy would rise rapidly as a result of it. And what was happening instead was the deficit was rising rapidly. And the belief was that Volcker was such, such a hard, you know, problematic theorist or whatever you want to call it, that he was standing in the way of the improvement of the United States economy, and that he simply had to go. Uh, now, obviously, I was not in the discussions, but most of the books, that, in fact, every one of the books that I've read on on, on this on the relationship between Reagan and Volcker were not positive, and Baker in particular, which who was Reagan's front man on a whole bunch of things, Baker was particularly uh, vigorous in believing that Volcker had to go. And, you know, he was supported, not just by, you know, these two men saying, what are you doing to the U.S. economy? It can't grow if you don't ease up 
He was, these two men were, were supported by the major countries around the world who said, you can't do this anymore. You just have to let, you know, you just have to let us keep control of our money and you can't do it if you keep these interest rates or you keep this tight, you know, tight control on the U.S. economy. So um, I, I think history would argue that he wasn't a sacrificial lamb. He, they wanted him out and they did get him out. <laughs> Well, that's interesting because a lot of people regard him as a hero, a folk hero almost of Wall Street. I do too. I think that the guy was phenomenal. Um, but, you know, basically um, the guy's in power at the time. But the fact is he did what needed to be done. He saved the American economy. He was as good as people say, but he uh, basically had to go, according to the two of them. And in the, the book that was reviewed yesterday by you and I, uh, Nathan Lewis said in his book that Volcker was making major mistakes yeah. because he was trying to lionize Reagan and put Volcker lower in, in people's esteem. But no, there's, there's no question. They wanted him out. He was He was perceived to be the reason that the U.S. economy could not recover, and he had to go. To Matt's point, uh, yeah, the euro didn't exist in 1985. Just for people who are paying attention to these kind of matters, it uh, grew out of the Maastricht agreement in 1991 in Europe and all the 12 EU members at that point uh, came together to create the euro. So I guess the point is that it might be easier to organize a new plaza accord because you have one block using the euro and then you have the british pound and some other currencies will it happen dick a new plaza accord i i believe it will if the dollar keeps rising in in in, in value i mean if let's create this this uh, hypothetical scenario you know the russians you know open the gas a little bit but not enough the winter turns out to be relatively harsh People in Europe are now screaming over the fact that they can't uh, keep the heater on. Uh, there, there are reports of, of deaths of people freezing in their apartments because they can't get heat. Uh, and, and you know, pe- pe- the economies have not recovered. The European economy is not recovering. It's, it's suffering me- meaningfully under, you know, the fact that uh, uh, businesses have not been able to run 100% of the time. You know, people, are, you know, are, are, are stuck in their homes. Uh, and, you know, th- th- there is there is a demand for solutions. And that is something that people take to the streets about. Uh, and then I think there's no question about the fact that these central banks have got to come together, come to an agreement and get this thing squared away. Because the other thing that's going to happen is that Europe will walk away from Ukraine so fast in, in this scenario that Russia could just walk right through the country. To what we've been saying on previous episodes, a strong currency projects strong political power. And if the dollar gets more stronger, some in Europe and some crazy folks even will think we're some kind of an imperial power pushing our weight around. Well, they think that already. <laughs> I mean, the point is, <laughs> <laughs> would be right. <laughs> Quite frankly, I hope it, I hope they're right in that view. Because oh, wow. I'm an American, and I would love to see us push everyone around for our benefit. Well, I mean, there's different opinions on that. But to, to sum up um, some of your recent notes, the latest three-month data indicates foreign central banks are dumping treasuries, China and Japan in particular. They're reducing the use of U.S. financial instruments to back up their currencies, and there are serious problems ahead. That kind of sums up where you're at. 
Yeah, no, I think that, uh, you know, that's a point that uh, we've raised a few times uh, in, in the last few weeks, and that is that central banks no longer are relying on the dollar to the extent that they did in the past. Uh, I mean, obviously, China and Russia are the leads in, in that regard. But, you know, other countries are had traditionally always used dollars and treasuries as the reserves instead of gold, as the reserves under which they would issue their own currencies. And as these countries have moved away from, from using the dollar and treasuries, it weakens the, the ability of the dollar to remain the, the, the only global currency, which is a fear that I, that I have, you know, that, that goes back, you know, years. But, but the point is, it, it is happening. And, and these numbers are showing that it's happening. Uh, and where you're getting the, 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 the purchases of the treasuries and the dollar are coming from companies and individuals in these various countries. You said the individuals are are the individuals and companies in foreign countries are buying treasuries. Are they buying enough treasuries to offset their central bank's lack of purchasing? Yes, at the moment they are. Yes, at least that's what the last few reports show. You're listening to Audion Capital Conversations with Dick Bovey and Matt Van Alstein. Dick is the Chief Financial Strategist at Audion, and Matt is Audion Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. And we have something new to announce. If you have any comments or questions for Audion Capital Conversations, please email us at podcast at audioncap.com. That's podcast at audioncap.com. Everything we've just spoken about is against the backdrop of the Russia invasion of the Ukraine. How is that still playing into it? Where is it all going, Dick? What's your latest analysis? Well, I, I mean, I just wrote a, a nasty letter to Foreign Affairs magazine because a nasty letter. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you were a big fan. <laughs> well, because I've been reading every every week, every day they put out articles, and every day I read these articles. The articles are, are so biased in the direction of the Ukraine will ultimately win, that Russia doesn't have the ability to stay in this uh, fight, that, uh, you know, the Russian army can't be replaced, and so on and so forth. And, you know, that's just not what's happening. And and what's happening is uh, the Russians have now solidified their control of a certain portion of the country and are gradually trying to push themselves further in uh, the Russians are now paying, you know, huge bonuses to uh, citizens who join the army, making it very compelling for them to join the army without doing this major, uh, you know, declaration of war, etc., which, you know, we've been told they have to do to get these people. They're getting the people. They're coercing them or they're giving them bonuses. The, you know, the Russians have superior technology, obviously, to Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, and I've also, again, mentioned in the past that if you take a look at Russian history, it is every time the Russians rebound from whatever disaster occurs in, in, in that nation, the first thing they do is try to reconquer what they lose and conquer things that they never owned before. It is the ethos of this country, Russia, to continually conquer, to use conquest is, is a foreign policy, uh, if you will, uh, program and they've done it for 400 years. So you know, if if we started to understand 
that this is the way the Russian people think, if this is the way the Russian function, government functions, and if the Russian government is not suffering the way Europe supposedly will, I mean, no one's turning off the gas in Russia. Nobody's having food shortages in Russia. Nobody is dealing with any shortage of critical raw materials in Russia because they have them all. And, and you know, we, we need some people who really understand this thing a hell of a lot better than I ever will to start explaining this so that we understand the position that Russia is in, which is a very strong position relative to Ukraine, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Moldavia, you know, all these places, all of which they're going to get back if we don't coalesce, understand what the risk is and start to have what Matt pointed to, you know, uh, you know, last last meeting, if we don't start to get leaders, if we don't start to get, you know, leaders who get the country behind them, we don't have them. We don't have people like Matt mentioned, you know, like Putin, who, who understands, knows, has got a clear direction, Xi Jinping the same way. We need these leaders. We need to do this stuff. And it's not being done. I think there's a reason that our leaders are lying to us, or at least the propaganda is that we're winning and Russia's on the verge of defeat. It's because if they told us the truth, that 20% of the Ukrainian territory is now held by Russia, that the 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 main sold the, the key trained soldiers in Ukraine are dying and they're being replaced by untrained you know people like me just get a gun and go go fight and you know don't know what you're doing is because if if we knew the truth or the American populace knew the truth the support would diminish and 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 the NATO would break up and and so forth but you know there was this quote from Putin this week that just I hate that I quote Putin all the time but he's the only world leader that goes out and says things that that seem quotable because you can't quote our leader and there's no one in Europe to quote. He said, today we hear that they want to defeat us on the battlefield. What can you say? Let them try. We've heard many times that the West wants to fight us to the last Ukrainian. This is a tragedy for the Ukrainian people, but it seems that everything is heading towards this. We are just getting started. And I believe him. I think this this is a disaster for the West and we, we are short leaders, but going back to the the what you said about the Plaza Accord and Europe and riots and Europe potentially breaking up. I just wonder if it's going to be a lot easier for at some point in Germany in the fall for Germany to basically declare neutrality and and try to get their gas turned back on because they're walking into a huge energy crisis if Russia doesn't continue supplying them with energy and they're aligned with NATO and the euro is falling precipitously and it, it it's very scary and I'm kind of worried about where the world is headed this year, not not in the future years, but this current year coming in the fall, what's going to happen if Russia doesn't play nice with Germany? You know, the thing that, uh, you know, really uh, bugs me is all we hear is how Russia is in trouble. And this is before the, the invasion of Ukraine, how that uh, the, the political situation is tenuous, you know, that they're assassinating the, uh, the opposition leaders, which, by the way, is a Russian history going back 400 years also. The, 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 what we don't hear is what Russia has done, what it's accomplished, how strong it's become. Uh, and again, a couple of weeks ago, the, the American press was going crazy over the fact that Apple had come up with a new headphone. You know, that's what we were doing. We, this is the grasshopper economy. All we're thinking about is what can we get for us 
what new technological uh, things, uh, breakthroughs can occur that give us more uh, entertainment, which gives us more leisure time, which changes you know, our, our lifestyle in a positive fashion. And they're building hypersonic missiles. That, when we are trying to get all excited over Apple having a new headphone, right? Well, we're getting all exciting over that. They're building hypersonic missiles. They're, they're redefining how nuclear weapons can be used so that you can have small ones, mid-sized ones, big ones. You know, they're defining you know, how they're going to deliver these systems. They know that people don't live on Apple headphones. They know that they live on grain. They know that they live on energy, and Russia has them. And we're not we are not evaluating the economies of that nation properly at all. And, and that is really a problem with why our, some of our leaders just don't get it. I agree. We have no Western leadership to rebuff Putin. That all said, I mean, look at Russia. What The economy is roughly the size of Belgium. And this is going to be the, some kind of a new imperial power. It's just hard to accept that. I don't think the word imperial power is 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 what we're talking about i think dick has mentioned a number of times uh, ivan the terrible and peter the great and the restoration of the original borders and going into ukraine i don't think even western europe feels like it's imperialism because because ukraine you know like let's be honest they, they went in and took russia went in and took crimea with barely a whimper and then they had a vote which a lot of outside leaders said was an honest vote where something like 97% of Crimeans voted to become Russian. And you see polls about the Donbass and it's close to 60, 70% of the people in the Donbass more identify culturally with Russia than they do with Ukraine. That, you know, that's not imperialism. Imperialism is going into Africa and setting up a country. And by the way, also imperialism, when you go into Africa or you go to across oceans to do it, it's really hard to keep your supply chains. It's really hard to keep um, culture. It's really hard to keep your people there. Going across a neighboring state, which has a lot of people that are already aligned with you, is not quite as challenging as, as something as drastic as historical imperialism. But the other thing is, is you know, you talk about the size of their economy as if that's you know relative to the size of their military. These guys have a 30, 40 year history of a strong military and they have a culture of militarism. And it's, it's not the same, I think, as a country, you know, if, if you call, call them the equivalent of, um, say, Brazil or, you know, something that's on the, on the same level in, um, in terms of GDP, they, they have a totally different GDP. They have a, a, an industrial base that can build airplanes, it can build rockets, it can build nuclear power plants, it can build tanks, it can build munitions. They have all the natural resources they need. They have all the food that they need. This is not China where they're importing half their supplies every day and then exporting the, the finished product. They are a fully self-contained factory that can produce what they need to survive. And I think Dick is right. They're proving it. And, you know, we talk, we're talking about the strength of the dollar and, you know, it's like the elephant in the room is that the strongest currency this year has been the ruble. And that's not because of, of Russia's, um, the, you know, it's not the sign of the sanctions are working. It's a sign that the sanctions can't work because because Russia has a currency that's backed by energy, food, exports, and there's people in the world that will buy them. Good point, Matt. I mean, part of the problem with this whole invasion is getting the truth out. As we've said before, first casualty of war is the truth. I mean, even Reuters acknowledged how difficult 
it was to get an accurate reporting on a recent incident. On the one side, Ukraine said they captured, recaptured some territory. On the other side, Russia said, no, they didn't. Something else occurred. And then Reuters says that we were not able to independently verify. So they may have 20% of their territory, but that, that's not the same as winning and that they're, they're going to triumph here. Well, it depends on what you define. You know, we've, we've talked about it before. Define win. I feel like the West has made the definition of winning that they never get to Lviv or Kiev or Kiev, however you pronounce it. But they're winning in, in lots of realms. You know, we, we America talks a lot, especially since Biden became president, about the um, the Quad, America's response to China's dominance in the, in the Asian Pacific region. And the Quad consists of Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. And this is supposed to be our new strongest alliance, you know, kind of like the Five Eyes. And... You sit and you look, and India is buying cheap Russian oil, and they're one of our closest allies to confront China. Like, how strong is our alliance when one of our closest allies is buying an enormous amount of Russian oil? Well, if Russia succeeds in the Ukraine, the outcome for the West is certainly... um unpalatable it's 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 frightening really but back to a point that you made dick you 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 seem to think that the um russia has the popular will of the population behind it you think the russians are fully behind what putin is doing here they're not 90 percent behind it they're 150 percent behind it they believe that they should own Ukraine. They believe that what Putin is doing is correct. They're really thrilled over the fact that the uh, Russian uh, nation is defeating uh, Ukraine and all of these evil people from the West. And, you know, they can do all these academic studies in these uh, places far removed from Russia. But the fact of the matter is, there is no indication of any uh, substance which would that would suggest that I'm wrong. All of the indications that I read suggest that the Russian people support the leaders and they support what's going on and they're thrilled over the fact that Russia is winning. And that's the whole point. This mm. is all this wishful thinking uh, that the Russians are all of a sudden going to rise up against Putin. This wishful thinking that the oligarchs are going to you know, somehow assassinate Putin. This wishful thinking that the Russian economy isn't big enough that the russian uh you know system is not working well it's wishful thinking yeah it's wishful thinking it is not reality and, and and until we start to get being fed reality we're not going to respond in the appropriate fashion if our economy is bigger than russia's because we know how to make bigger you know headphones at apple that's not that's not what's going to win for us Putin essentially has shut down his opposition. Could that be acknowledged? I mean, look at the, the mass amount of emigration of the intelligentsia, the academics, IT folks. And prior to the invasion, there were street protests on a, on a large scale. So it appears that while he may claim the populace is behind him right now, and the polling, in my view, is kind of suspect. It's not it, his claim. Not his claim. Well, whose claim is it? The claim of the people who have taken the, 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 the feeling of the Russian people. Again, it's you, your desire to beat Russia is as strong as mine, but you don't want to think about the fact that Russia is not the weak country that you think. You want to think about the fact that the vast majority of people in the world want to be led. They don't want to have democracy. You know, but if you start to realize that that's the case, because in reality, that's the way the world is, 
then you'll start to understand that the Russians are not unhappy with their their particular situation. It's it's a great take, and it, it's it's good to get this uh, kind of counterintuitive argument, if you will. But I mean, have we forgotten about these protests back in 2020 by Alexei Navalny when he came back into Russia? Two hundred thousand people spread out across Russia supporting him. He was the opposition politician to Putin. I mean, there are numerous others, but it it feels that all of that has been quashed by Putin. He's shut down opposition media. He's controlling the media. And we have to sort of interpret what we can from that. Did the Nazis ever have a majority of the people in Germany? Did Mussolini's supporters ever have a majority in the people of Italy? No. Putin has a majority. Putin, you know, 200,000 people in a country which has well over 100 million people is nothing. Well, he certainly has a control of the narrative, Dick, and so did Adolf Hitler. The first thing Adolf Hitler did when he rose in power was give everybody out a transistor radio so they could spew his propaganda and indoctrinate people. Yeah, and they were indoctrinated. Mm, And that's, is Putin indoctrinating his population? Absolutely. I mean, you're not seeing riots anywhere in Russia at the present time. You know, you're not seeing, you know, multiple assassination attempts, although there was, you know, a report that there was one that neither the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal picked up. So I'm not sure that it's true. You're not seeing upset in Russia. You know, there, there was a, a call, the one report that came out was there was a call from a, a Ukrainian family to their relatives in Russia uh, explaining what Russia was doing. And the Russian response from the family in Russia was, no, you got it all wrong. We're trying to save you people from, you know, whatever, they, the, the Nazis or whatever. But, you know, the, the Russian people do not dislike what Putin is doing. One thing we take from this is that we need strong Western leadership. I think we all agree on that, and we, we just don't have it. I, I would also point out, if you were in China, and, and there's, there, there's ways to research um, what other countries show about America, the American, the propaganda in China is all about Donald Trump, January 6th, as if it's like the dominant political force. And and I guess the Democrats are running on that as well. So trying to pretend that it is, but like, you know, Dick just said that we don't see riots and protests in Ch- Russia. And I sit there thinking, well, if they had riots and protests, would we see them? I mean, who knows? There, there might be small ones, but, but like January 6th was a huge, horrible stain on on our country, but at the end of the day, it was a fraction of a percent of the population representing another fraction of the percent of the population, and and it, it's it's not like there are riots and protests everywhere. But if you went out to to Russia or China and saw their media, they would act as if our entire country is is riots and protests every day. And I personally haven't seen one. I know I see it on the news like everyone else. I, I think that the the other thing on propaganda. I would bet if you ask the American people right now, if we are winning or losing, they, when I say we, geez, we're not supposedly even in this war, but if Ukraine is winning or losing, they would think that Ukraine is winning the war. Hmm. And I, I, think that's, I think that's physically impossibly to, yeah. impossible to say when you have less territory than you used to. And yet that's the perception. So propaganda plays a role on, on, on both sides. And the other, the other thing is we, we always taught you, John, you mentioned a bunch of times, like, winning and losing. And I think there's just no winners. Like this is going to end at some point. Ukraine is not going to be better off for it. And Russia is not going to be better off for it. Parties are going to be worse off for it. So how do you decide a winner 
when everyone loses. It, it, it seems like this is really a, a casebook of losers on every front. I like your research on this, Dick, by the way. Here's a great quote from Leo Tolstoy. Kings are the slaves of history. You can take that for what it's worth. And I guess maybe Putin sees himself as some kind of a king, emperor. All these empires come and go. Putin apparently is wanting to change his title from president, because he thinks that's a, a Western term, to ruler. Because yeah. he doesn't want to be a imperialist, he just wants to be the ruler, but not a president. Yeah, and he'll have all these badges and medallions at the next May Day parade or whatever they have over there. Moving on here to the Federal Reserve, Dick, you say in a recent note, it's unlikely to pursue very tough sanctions. And you talk about inflation may be peaking, the economy is weakening, and job numbers in America are not convincing. Yeah, well, there are two sets of jobs, to start at that level, there are two sets of uh, job levers which are published every month. One comes from a poll which is done of uh, establishments, companies, businesses, and they say, you know, are you hiring people? How many people work for you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then there's a second uh, uh, set of uh, questions that go out to households. And, and the question is, do you have a job? Are you looking for a job? What have you? The establishment number is used to show how much employment there is in the United States. And it showed last month that there was a pretty big jump in, in uh, employment. The household number shows how much unemployment there is in the United States. In other words, the establishment number cannot tell you how many people are unemployed because they have no contact with the people who are unemployed. And that's why they do the household survey. The household survey shows that there was a decline in the number of people employed in the United States last month. So I think that, um, you know, if, we, if we're going to rely I, all my career, uh, you know, I've used the uh, household numbers because it's a, it's a broader picture of the economy. I, I use the household numbers going, going uh, non-seasonally non adjusted, you know, year over year, and they're not showing what the establishment numbers are showing at the present time. So that's number one. Number two, you know, you do have these continual announcements of late uh, we, we have someone who keeps sending us stuff about companies going bankrupt, but the, the bankruptcy numbers are starting to pick up. The, the, uh, the layoff numbers are starting to pick up. You know, the, 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 the yield curve is inverted. All the signs of moving into a recession are there. And, and therefore, to assume that it's not going to happen, I think, becomes a stretch. Um, now you got the Federal Reserve. Uh, to start up where you started the question, John, the, the Federal Reserve is tightening. The Federal Reserve is tightening into going into a recession. Well, that's what they did in 1929. That's what they did twice in the 1930s. So I think it's necessary for them to tighten. I think it's necessary for them to taper because they've got to defeat the inflation. But I think if they do what they're now claiming they're going to do, they're going to be going too far. And, and in other words, they, they heightened the cycle on the upside, and now it looks like they're going to heighten the cycle on the downside. And I think and I hope that they're smart enough to realize we're going to kill inflation, we're going to taper, we're going to raise rates, but we're going to stop, you know, when it, when, when it appears that we've gone a little bit further than we should have. And I think they will stop. You see inflation still peaking? Yeah, I mean, the numbers that came out today, you know, would show, 
you know, that, that, that inflation still had moved up a little bit. They were 8.8%, and the and the month-over-month month number was 1.1%, which would imply, you know, you know lower double-digit inflation. But it, that, that's, that's the survey for tomorrow's release. No, they, they're, they're releasing tomorrow at 8.30. Everyone's really excited, but that's the survey. Oh, okay. Well, then I apologize because that's that's what the survey shows. But uh, I don't know. I, I think that I, I definitely believe that inflation has peaked. I think that uh, all of the reasons that I had for saying inflation would occur are gone, right? I mean, the deficit is declining. The um, need for the Fed, I mean, foreign money is coming in. The need for the Fed to buy a debt is not there. We're seeing oil prices have come down, commodity prices have come down, uh, wages are not growing as fast. No, I, I agree with you. I think I think one of the problems is that the the inflation number that is going to be released tomorrow and every month, you know, thereafter the CPI report, is it's really a lagging indicator, yeah. and and the owner's equivalent rent is something like thirty percent of the inflation number, but they spread it out over such a huge amount of time. When you know you had that gap right at the gap up right after COVID lockdowns ended, where rents jumped like fifteen percent in you know year on year for a couple of months straight, and then CPI comes out the next day and shows rents are up one percent, and it's because they they average it out over time. So I feel like we might see some high headline numbers while Dick is right that inflation is actually you know leveling off or even going in reverse, but it's just not showing up in the CPI calculation yet. And so I'd, I'd caution that, you know, tomorrow they're expecting 8.8, which is supposed to be the new high. But at the same time, a lot of it is because of last year's um, rent increases, which is now finally showing up in the OER calculus. So a lagging indicator. Your, your point could still hold, Dick. A, a report I was sent this morning from Numerator out of Chicago. I think, think it's kind of interesting. Grocery inflation reaches record high of 15.1% in June and consumers switching to club and dollar stores to save beverages most impacted by rising prices. Well, what I'm hearing on television uh, is Target opening up sales, you know, Amazon expanding its one day sale to a one week sale, excess inventory everywhere in the system, inventories have got to be gotten rid of, prices are coming down in all the retail, uh, you know, establishments. Uh, So, you know, I guess you put one against the other. You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Dick is the Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon and Matt is Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. And we have something new to announce. If you have any comments or questions for Odeon Capital Conversations, please email us at podcast at odeoncap.com. Dot com. That's podcast at odiancap.com. Bank earnings season begins this week, Dick. What's ahead? I think people will focus on it and you'll get all sorts of things happening in the stock market because of it, but the numbers are useless. And the reason why I say the numbers are useless is because this earnings season is reflecting a period of economic growth in the United States economy that had resumed and in high levels of inflation. If we're in the next half of the year going to go into a recession and, and prices not you know flattening out or decreasing, then whatever these companies show they did in the second quarter will be irrelevant in terms of where they're going to be in the second half. And I think that um, you know basically it's going to be what these 
managements perceive is occurring uh, in the second half is what we have to listen to more than the numbers. The numbers, however, are going to be confusing because for banks, at least, which is my area, basically uh, loan volume has been very strong. Uh, I think by the end of the quarter, uh, commercial industrial lending was up 9% year over year, and it was, uh, you know, declining, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, margins have gone up very, very sharply because interest rates have gone up very, very sharply. And uh, th- there's a, a wonky statistic which says that, you know, banks increase prices 80% of the increase that the Fed puts out they increase deposits 16% of the increase in prices, which, which basically means that the banks jump jump the rates on what they're selling, loans, and they don't increase the rates on the money they're buying, which is deposits. So, so the net effect is margins are wide, unit sales are big, uh, profits are going to soar on the core banking part of the business. All the other parts of uh, the business are not going to do that well. Investment banking is going to be weak. Mortgage banking is going to be weak. We're going to see deposit fees come down. We're going to see asset management fees reduced. So, you know, essentially, you're going to get one part, core banking, doing really well. And you're going to get another part, you know, all of these peripheral areas, I'll call it, not doing well at all. And then you got this unknown. According to the accounting rules, the banks have to figure out whether we're going into a recession or they're going to have to figure out whether we're going to have continued economic growth. If we're going into a recession, they have got to increase their loan loss reserves appreciably, which really kills earnings. If we're going into you know growth in the second half, they can reduce their loan loss reserves, which they've done for the last you know four quarters. So the net net of all of it is that uh, you know th- there's going to be so many conflicting events in these numbers that it's going to be phenomenal. But the bottom line is I don't care what the numbers show. I want to know what they're going to show for the second half, and this this quarter is not going to give you an indicator of that. So wait till the second half. I think so. But core banking still strong. Core banking is extraordinarily strong right now. Uh, you have a note on bank preferreds. Can you take us through that? Well, you know, I, I'm seeking, as most people are, someplace to get a yield which is decent and where I'm completely safe. Um, and, and obviously, nothing's completely safe, but banks do not cut the dividends on their preferreds unless they're definitely going into bankruptcy. They just don't do it and they won't do it. So, any one of the major banks in the United States is not going to cut the dividends on any preferreds that they offer. In addition to which, a look at their balance sheets would indicate there's no rationale for it. There's no reason for it. You know, the balance sheets are loaded with cash and uh, excess liquidity, as the the regulators would say. So the bank preferred dividends are not going to be cut. So if I know that the bank preferred dividend is there, and if I want to park my money somewhere where I get more than cash, in, in something that might catch up to the rate of inflation, bank preferred to the place to go. And Any I, names here, Dick? Well, I, I like to play the riskier banks at the moment because people might think, for example, that Citigroup, Citigroup is going to have a horrible earnings number as far as I can see. They could have, their earnings might be down 40% year over year, right? That's how bad it could be. Now, as a result of that, a lot of investors might say, well, the preferreds in Citigroup are at risk, and therefore, I don't want to own the preferreds in Citigroup, and they'll sell them. And that'll create an opportunity because Citigroup 
there is no likelihood uh, on this planet that Citigroup is going to cut any preferred dividend. There's another bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which is SIVB Financial, which basically has seen its earnings soar because the bulk of the increase in earnings come from marking to market the 3,000 warrants that they have in high-tech companies located in Silicon Valley. They're marking those, they're marking to market down, you know, in the last quarter, and they're going to mark them down again in this quarter. Again, the earnings number should be very discouraging, but they've got a preferred stock out there. And again, any thought that they can't make a preferred dividend payment would be simply almost laughable given the amount of cash that the company has. So it's another one I would look at. A little bit riskier would be Goldman Sachs because um, Goldman Sachs has this ability to manipulate the, um, if you will, compensation number to show better earnings than what they're actually doing. And therefore, their earnings may not be as weak as I think I, I think they might be. But if they, if they are as weak as I think they might be, Goldman Sachs's preferred dividend yields should jump. And that's another opportunity because Goldman Sachs is not going to fail to make its preferred dividend payment. Wells Fargo is not going to fail to make its dividend payment, even if you know the mortgage banking industry for Wells Fargo is collapsing in this in, in, in the last quarter. So what I'm looking for are companies that, that I know are going to pay the dividend, you know, as much as anybody can know anything, but I know are going to pay the dividend and are going to have very weak earnings where there might be a, an opportunity to catch those preferred yields at above average rates, and I want to buy them. Citigroup, Wells Fargo, SIVB Financial, SVB Financial, it's called Silicon Valley Bank, and, and uh, perhaps Goldman Sachs. Well, we'll come back next week to earnings and you can give us your take and analysis on it, Dick. Uh, we're almost out of time. Any final thoughts? Well, from my perspective, um, I, would, I would hope that, that you know, we start to get rational reporting of events, both economically and politically, not just in the United States, but elsewhere in the world. I would hope that the leaders of this country, uh, looking at rational, not conditioned reporting, you know, start to take the steps necessary to protect us in what is going to be a very rocky world, in my view, for the next six months. I agree with you. I, I would love to get the truth out of our leaders. I mean, Joe Biden wrote this op-ed and said he's going over to Saudi Arabia because they're such a valued partner and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, why doesn't he just tell the truth? He, he doesn't want to drill oil here. He wants to drill it over there and he needs it because we're suffering because of the, our own policies. I agree well, I'm with sorry that. to be uncharitable. I'm not sure Joe Biden knows what day of the week it is sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's uncharitable. Well, until next week, we'll be back for episode 26 with more in-depth analysis from Dick Beauvais with Matt Van Alstein. Until then, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.